Hello and welcome to Theology Unleashed. I'm Arjuna and this is the channel where Eastern theology meets Western skepticism. Today I've got Krishna Satcha on again, also known as Dr. Kenneth Valpy, and we'll be discussing the Hare Krishna conception of God. Uh, so thanks for coming on, Kenneth. Thank you for having me again, Arjuna. It's nice to be here. So we did a, a stream last week or a couple of weeks back with Dr. Ryan Mullins, who is a scholar of conceptions of God. He's a Christian. And uh, he explained sort of the sort of landscape of Western conceptions of God. And today, Krishna Satchaswami is going to give us his explanation of where the Gaudiya Vaishnava, aka the Hare Krishna conception of God, sits on that landscape. So, uh, where would you like to get started? Well, this, the fact that the way you phrased it uh, suggests to me that I start with being slightly defensive, um, <laughs> following in the footsteps of a scholar, I believe he's teaching at Harvard University now, Paramal uh, G. Patil. Professor Patil has written an, a chapter um, at the very end of Professor Francis Clooney's book called Hindu God, Christian God. And there's a subtitle here, I always forget. Yes, How Reason Helps Break Down the Boundaries Between Religion. So this is Francis Clooney's book. Francis Clooney was my doctoral supervisor at Oxford. He's now also at Harvard. Uh, but at the end of this book, is a chapter called A Hindu Theologian's Response, a prolegomenon to, quote, Christian God, Hindu God. And sort of the main point he wants to make, I would say, is, or his starting point is that we need to be aware of the asymmetry uh, that's involved in discourse, theological discourse, in particular between Christian and Hindu theology, and that asymmetry is due to historical realities. The fact that uh, India, you know, was um, part of the British Empire and so on. So I won't go into any detail of that, but it's interesting, I think, or it's relevant uh, to keep this in mind that Hindu, theolo Hindu theology is a bit, shall we say, on the defensive uh, when in discussion with Christian theology just by virtue of the fact that uh, the, the power situation has been what it's been in uh, the, in the last uh, century and a half, two centuries or more, depending how you want to read history. Um, and so keeping that in mind, I think uh, we can then proceed with something which you started to speak about in your discussion with Ryan Mullen, Dr. Mullen, uh, namely 
the idea in the Vaishnava tradition of Brahman, Paramatma, and Bhagavan. The fact that there are three aspects to uh, the Supreme, we would understand as Paramsatyam, as the Supreme Truth. And uh, of these three in the Vaishnava tradition, Bhagavan is given uh, the highest position. Bhagavan meaning uh, the person God, we may translate in that way. Uh, literally, Bhagavan means one who possesses plenitude. I like to use the word plenitude. Sometimes uh, the word opulence is used, but I think plenitude gets more to it in some sense. Um, and then we take the word opulence and turn it into a plural when the word doesn't have a plural A. Yeah, opulences, which is interesting. Um, but then I'd like to also share, if, if you can bear with me, to read a paragraph, a paragraph-long definition of Bhagavan uh, that is given by Rupa Gos, no, sorry, by Jiva Goswami. Um, who is Jiva Goswami? He is the author, the compiler, and um, yeah, he, he doesn't say he's the author. He says, I'm the compiler, basically, uh, of what's called the Shatsandarbhas, the six treatises which I think we can safely call a, um, a systematic theology of Gaudiya Vaishnavism from the 16th century, which he wrote in Sanskrit. And I have a translation of his definition from the second of these six sandarbhas or treatises, uh, a definition of Bhagavan. Now it's... it's Hold on to your seat because it's quite a bit in one paragraph. Isn't that, isn't that definition a single word, like a compound Sanskrit phrase? It's not one compound, but we can talk about that. We can also look at the Sanskrit. Uh, I'm reading uh, Professor Ravi Gupta's translation from his book on Jiva Goswami's Vedanta. Uh, it goes like this. He, who is the very form of existence, consciousness, and bliss, who possesses inconceivable, multifarious, and unlimited energies that are of his own nature, who is the ocean of unlimited, mutually contradictory qualities, such that in him both the attribute and the possessor of attributes, the lack of differences and varieties of differences, formlessness and form, pervasiveness and centrality, madhyamatva, all are true. Whose... <laughs> That's just uh, the first third. Whose beautiful form is distinct from both gross and subtle entities, self-luminous 
and consisting entirely of his own nature, who has unlimited such forms that are manifested by his chief form, called Bhagavan, whose left side is beautified by Lakshmi, the manifestation of his personal energy, suitable to his own form, who resides in his own abode along with his associates, who are furnished with a form that is a special manifestation of his own splendor, who astonishes the hosts of Atmaramas, those who take pleasure in the self, by his wonderful qualities, pastimes, etc., which are characterized by the play of his personal energy, whose own generic brilliance is manifested in the form of the reality of Brahman, who is the sole shelter and life of his marginal energy, called the living entities, jivas, whose mere reflected energy are the modes of nature, gunas, visible in the unlimited phenomenal world, he is Bhagavan. <laughs> so that's, that's a definition, we may say. It's, um, it's covering a lot of ground. And it's saying a lot about relationships. We may say it's emphasizing relationship, it's emphasizing form, uh, that uh, the Supreme Being has form, albeit not material form, but spiritual form. Uh, and he has associates. He also, and I found this particularly striking that he includes this in his definition of Bhagavan, he has uh, a feminine counterpart, Lakshmi. Uh, he names as Lakshmi, and of course, uh, if we speak about Bhagavan, if we speak about Krishna as being Bhagavan, we may get to that later, then we don't speak of Lakshmi so much as we speak of Radha. Uh, but uh, he brings in this point, that there is a feminine counterpoint to the masculine uh, person who is Bhagavan. So that may be a starting point. Now, how to fit this you know, into a uh, concept of God from a Christian perspective. I'm not sure I'm able to do that. <laughs> so it seems to me that what the Christians discuss when they debate conceptions of God are, it's like a, they come at it from a completely different angle and they, mm, they yes. don't really touch on the subjects which are the main focus of Gaudiya Vaishnavas. Mm. Yes, one thing that came to my mind uh, about Christian concepts of God, it seems like the starting point is uh, to highlight difference from human beings 
uh, where, whereas human beings are limited as they are um, and fallible as they are and so on, God is not limited, not fallible. So he is um, not limited in knowledge, not limited uh, in um, in power, and so on. So he is omniscient, he is omnipresent, uh, and I think the word immutable is used, which is interesting, and then impassibility is used. Um, but then, uh, okay, then there's further discussion about the problems that may be there from those classical uh, descriptions. But from a starting point, it seems, my impression is, um, maybe there's some history to this, that uh, the theolo theologians of Christian tradition were looking to see what is different from, uh, from the human being, from from beings of this world. Um, difference is also very as, an essential aspect of understanding of, of God in Vaishnava traditions, and that's elaborated extensively in, by Jiva Goswami and other Vaishnava uh, Vedantists especially, uh, but there's also sameness, there's also non-difference. And so within the, uh, the first of Jiva Goswami's treatises, the Tattva Sandarva, he has one section in which he specifically points this out, uh, that um, one, one way of understanding God is to look at what are the qualities or what are the features uh, what specific aspects of uh, individual personhood are there to be considered. And um, I don't know if you like, I, I probably shouldn't do so much reading, but I do have a passage here um, on this point. Characteristics of the soul. Um, the jeev, this is a discussion, this comes within uh, a famous, famous discussion in Vedanta, a particular statement in one of the Upanishads, the Chandogya Upanishad, Tattvam Asi, which is typically translated that, Tat, Tvam, you, Asi, are. And so the non-dualists, the Advaita, Vadins, those who follow, who uh, have the doctrine, the vada of non-dualism, absolute non-dualism, uh, will argue that this statement makes it clear that the the self, the atma, that's us, are non-different, or are exactly the same. Are, are not, how do, <laughs> there's no difference. There is identity uh, between the self and Brahman, Atman and Brahman. But this is what Jiva Goswami says. Mm. The Jiva is designated Tvam, you, 
in the statement tat tvam asi, you are that. If one first understands that quote-unquote you is conscious and eternal, then one can easily understand how the Supreme Brahman, Tat, has a similar nature. The Vedanta Sutra, it quotes uh, 1.3.20, states, one contemplates the jiva, um, that is the self, another, there's atma and there's jiva, kind of more or less interchangeable terms. One contemplates the jiva in order to know the other, the supreme, unquote. And then he goes on, in accordance with this reasoning, uh, a certain sage named Pipalayana Yogendra establishes this point by describing the jiva as having the same nature as Tat when he says to a certain king, King Nimi, and this is from Bhagavata Purana, the Srimad Bhagavatam, quote, the soul was never born and will never die, nor does it grow or decay. It is actually the knower of the youth, middle age, and death of the material body. It can thus be understood to be pure consciousness, existing everywhere at all times and never being destroyed. Just as the life air within the body, although one becomes many in contact with the various material senses, so the soul appears to assume various material designations in contact with its material bodies. So that, the way that's told, it's emphasizing the non-difference uh, between Bhagavan and uh, the individual self. And however, there's uh, a lot more discussion, main discussion we can say in, in his treatises is about difference, the difference between ourselves and the Lord. Um, so that's yeah. probably a, a consistent difference between Krishna consciousness and Christianity because Christians want to say the soul was created. Uh, and a lot of Christians also think a soul can be depraved eternally. So this is, if, you know, if a soul can be eternally damned, if it's, you know, it can be unsalvageable, uh, then the soul's not divine. Nat intrinsically, hmm. divinity is something that is bestowed upon the soul, but not there naturally. Whereas on Gaudiya Vaishnavism and uh, many other uh, Indian traditions, the soul is divine by its very nature. And if you remove all the material covering, coverings, then you've got something divine there. Uh, I don't think you find that in the Abrahamic traditions. Um, yes. However, I do believe, and, you know, I'm, I'm going, uh, I'm sort of tapping in territory that I'm by no means an expert in, but I believe specifically in the Orthodox Christian tradition, there is a notion of div divination uh, that um, by, um, by the culture of God consciousness one, and, and by the grace of God, one becomes in effect di divinized. Uh, so 
uh, it, yeah, there, but this there's is a possible from the transformation. Being. So the soul can become divine on many Christian views, but uh, the soul is not by its very nature divine before that happens, is my understanding. Uh, maybe there's some Christians that, that differ from there. Uh, yeah, we should we should have uh, a Christian we'll, with us we'll find to out. correct so us. So we're having a, a future discussion where <laughs> Kenneth Valpy will converse with Ryan Mullins, and that's one oh, point we could talk about. Yes. So I, I think this idea that the soul is like God in quality, and that you know it's satchit and under and it, it's eternal knowledge and bliss. Um, that's quite a unique thing compared to the Abrahamic traditions, because the Abrahamic traditions they pretty much all think the soul is created at a certain point. Uh, this also came up with, when I was discussing with Dr. Ryan Mullins about panentheism, which I believe Krishna Kodiya Vaishnavism is panentheism, where you want to say there's a sense in which God is, has unity with the universe, with the material world. Um, and, and the difference there between that and classical theism or views of God, which are different from panentheism, is they'll say, the material world didn't exist at a particular point. Whereas um, if you want to say, you know, one, one thing we mean when we say God and the universe are, are identical in a sense is that there was never a time when God existed all alone without the universe. You know, the universe comes and goes cyclically, but that cycle never began. Yeah, well, one of the reasons that... Um, it's important in the Vaishnavedanta tradition to, to see um, material creation as always existing and as creation of God, as emanation of God, is uh, because of the question that is persistent and pervasive in Vedanta, the question, what is real and what is not real? This is kind of the, this is, this is the, the context in which so much is discussed. And the non-dualist, um, extreme non-dualism of Advaita Vedanta wants to say that this world is uh, asat, it is not real, it is mitya, it is a kind of falsity or a mistake. Um, the reason being that it is temporal. And the Vaishnava wants to say, well, not so fast. <laughs> yes, it is temporal, but that doesn't make it not real. Uh, it is real because it is coming from the real. And here we come to... Uh, Which is... Yeah, go ahead. Uh, that's not a move that the Advaita Vadi can make because they want to say that the ultimate source of all reality is devoid of all qualities. And how can you get qualities which come from that which has no qualities? You can't. So that means that the qualities that we perceive are, are not real. It's, it's an illusion. Right. Ultimately, of course, they will uh, qualify this in a sense uh, by saying that on the Vyavaharika level of reality, of course, things are real. 
Um, but um, the Vaishnava will say, no, no, don't, don't introduce unnecessary categories here. Uh, the world is real, and therefore our being in this world and our actions are, are meaningful, and in particular our actions in relation to God are meaningful and purpose and, and have um, ultimate, ultimate meaning. So Vyavyaharika, just for the audience, is uh, time, place, no, no, you explain it, and then there's Paramartika, which is eternal truth. Yeah, Vyavyaharika means, uh, we can say, ordinary as opposed to extraordinary. So it's this world, uh, it's, it's the world of, uh, the phenomenal world. It's, it's what we well, all I'm experience. There might be something like if you have a job where you need to perform a certain role, that's your vyavaharika dharma. You know, it's just something that you have to do at a particular time and circumstances. Whereas it's like, well, that's not my real identity. That's just something I get paid to do. And just for a certain time and place, <laughs> I per perform that role. But my real identity is this, you know, here now. Yeah, you could, you could say like that. That could be a way of explaining. Yeah. Like, you know... It, I, I like you know the eternal like I'm I'm a spirit soul, born in a particular place. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just the vyavaharika. You know I just have this particular body right now and I perform these duties, but really I'm an eternal spirit soul. Yes, you could you could use that term, I believe, in that in that way. Why not? Um, so there's a few topics we'll need to cover. One, one is, you know, there's the, the four qualities which classical theism affirms that uh, other Christian views of God reject, which is timeless, immutable, impassable, and what was the fourth one? Omniscient. No, the, the omni properties are pretty much universally accepted by everyone. I don't think those are debate. Oh, uh Divine foreknowledge is debated, and that's just whether you're an open theist or whether you're not an open theist. I think the classical theists are not open theists, but anyone who's not a classical theist could be an open theist or not be an open theist, which simply means you think God knows everything that everybody's going to do. And then that raises a debate of, well, if God knows everything, then does that mean I have no free will? Mm. Does that mean I, I, I'm determined by God's foreknowledge to act in the way that he knows I'm going to act. Hmm. Uh, so maybe we could, since we're discussing this one, so would you say that Krishna knows everything anyone's ever going to do, all their choices they're ever going to make? He knows and he gives us complete freedom, both. This is the both and, I think, of the, the Vaishnava tradition where the uh, again, in this definition uh, of Bhagavan, contradictory qualities uh, or features can coexist. How they coexist, we may not comprehend, um, but it's, it's understood that they do. And what's more, maybe this is getting ahead uh, too early, but um, it's understood that uh, the Supreme Being acting through his energies, through his powers. Again, he has unlimited energies. Um, acting for purposes of expanding um, 
the sum total of divine bliss, we can put it like that, uh, especially through his lila, his, his divine acts, which includes creation, but in a sense creation is a minor uh, aspect of, of what, of his lila, his acts, that he can arrange through his energies that he forgets his own divinity. Uh, why would he want to do that? He would want to do that because uh, awareness of his all-knowing, all-powerful position and also awareness of that sort um, by those with whom he, with his friends, with his associates, would become an obstacle uh, to their interacting in uh, mutually pleasing ways. And similarly, it's explained by um, one of the theologians of the 18th century, Vishwanath Chakavarti Thakur. Uh, in particular situations, Bhagavan, as Krishna, can actually feel um, distress and fear. God can be can be fearful. How does he? How does how and why would he be fearful? He can be fearful when he puts himself in a situation where one of his devotees takes uh, the role of being his mother, and and the Lord being in the position of a small child, uh, the mother's uh, feelings toward the child are naturally one of uh, affection and protection and care. And sometimes, uh, depending on how the child acts, if the child becomes mischievous, then the mother becomes angry I told you not to do this, and so on. So in such a situation, the child may become fearful of punishment. So there's an episode described in the Bhagavata Purana, the Srimad Bhagavatam, in which this precisely this is the case. Uh, little Krishna, toddler Krishna, uh, becomes uh, a thief, and he causes quite some mischief by stealing, so to say, in quotation marks, stealing uh, butter and similar dairy products, which um, his mother, Yeshoda, has, um, has worked very hard to prepare for him. Now he's stealing and distributing to monkeys. She becomes angry. Krishna becomes Fearful, and at this uh, point, Vishwanath Chakravarti explains that indeed Krishna is fearful, even though he is the source of fear. Uh, he is uh, the cause of fear of of all beings, being the supreme 
powerful being, he, he turns around and becomes fearful. And why does he do that? He does that for the purpose of uh, exchange of devotional relationship with his bhakta, with his devotee. So I don't know, I probably took us way off track here, but... Oh, well, there's, there's two points there. One is uh, a big focus for Gaudiya Vaishnavs in, in uh, are, are understanding the theology and arguing for it within the Indian context, in mm -hmm. the Hindu context, is uh, God is the most opulent. Your Bhagavan, God has, what was the word you used? Plenitude. Plenitude, so, yeah. There's, there's an argument from, uh, an ontological argument from St. Anselm, which goes, God is that which no greater can be imagined. Right. So the classical theists get annoyed if you use the word being because God isn't a being. He's uh, the ultimate ground of all being, which is not himself a being. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, um, so Jiva Goswami, my understanding is he gave a similar argument that God is, you know, the, whatever is the greatest conception that we can find, that will be the closest to God. So, uh, or, you know, the, you know, so we look in the Veda context where if we want to think that the Vedas have a complete explanation of the spirituality, whoever's got the most opulence, the most plenitude, is going to be the supreme personality of Godhead. And then he gives an argument for how Krishna possesses, or, you know, all, the all good qualities to the highest degree. Uh, and you just mentioned there a story where Krishna displayed loving pastimes with his mother, you know, pers intimate personal relations. And that's an opulence. You know, we, you know the loving relationship between a mother and a child is considered one of the highest things in the world. Uh, you know, everyone can appreciate it. Right. Uh, the other point that's tied into what you said, uh, I think slipped my mind. What was it? Uh, how we got onto that was uh, God having foreknow divine foreknowledge. Does God know everything that's going to happen or does yeah. he know everything that is happening right now? And my understanding of the Vaishnava conception is that God is, in some sense, compartmentalized. So he has expansions. And uh, the way I explain it, you can tell me what you think about this, is that God, whatever we can do uh, in different moments, God can do simultaneously. So, you know, Prabhupada gave the example of the court judge who is exhibiting one personality and then goes home and exhibits a different personality. Once there was a really big prime minister who someone was waiting a few hours and eventually they looked through the keyhole and saw that <laughs> his son was riding him around the room like a horsey. <laughs> and uh, this is the idea that we have different personalities, but God can have a different form to exhibit a different personality and he can do so simultaneously while he's exhibiting a different personality, but we can't change forms so easily and we can't do them simultaneously. Uh, so it's, it's so similarly, adding, adding <laughs> to that, so tying it back into the foreknowledge thing, God can have an aspect of himself which knows everything while also have an aspect of himself which is covered over by the yoga maya potency, yes. by the, the spiritual energy, which and it facilitates divine pastimes where he can be forget his God and be frightened of his mother and be surprised by his lover and, and you know, be surprised by his friends who he's wrestling with and so on. Yeah. Another way this is put uh, in the tradition is there is there are two principles. One is tattva, uh, and the other is rasa. So tattva refers to ontology, 
what is the actual nature uh, of of Bhagavan. And rasa is about relationship and specifically um, emotion. Uh, this is a term, the, the second term, rasa, is drawn from, it's, it's been developed also especially in the 16th century by uh, the uncle of Jiva Goswami, Rupa Goswami, uh, but it's drawn from, or it's uh, it's identified typically with uh, the aesthetic traditions of Indian poetry and drama, um, where it's understood what is what is language about. One of the fundamental purposes, functions of language, is to evoke emotions, uh, and that becomes developed to, to a, an extreme degree in the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition as a means by which to understand uh, this principle called bhakti, uh, which is about uh, the, the means, the process the, of developing, practicing relatedness with the Supreme Person, with Bhagavan. So, um, I always lose my own train of thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Rasa and Tattva, yeah, uh, we these, may need to these explain two, a little bit. Yeah, these two principles are there, and you spoke of compartments, so... In one sense, uh, this is another way of understanding compartments. You spoke of this, uh, the simultaneity of different forms, different expansions of Bhagavan. Another way of understanding is in terms of these two approaches to, we may say, param satyam, supreme, supreme truth. So again, it seems like here what we're discussing is largely um, completely missed by the contemporary discussion in Western philosophy and Western theism. And we're just like on a completely different tangent from what they focus on. Um, of course, we would tell ourselves or the tradition might tell us that uh, what they have is maybe, you'll, I trust you to say this in a more respectful fashion, but uh, we might want to say that it's like a kindergarten understanding, like, you know, God is great. He's impassable. He's immutable. You know, God can't be beat. He's the greatest. And then what we have is, is more detail into that. Well, what does it mean for God to be great? Well, actually, it, it means he's the best flute, flute player. He's the most beautiful. He has blue skin. He sports in Vrindavan with, with the Cowherd boys. He, uh, he sports with the Gopis in Vrindavan. He wrestles with the Cowherd boys. He's scared of his mother. Um. Yeah, as you said, maybe I would be more polite. Not just more polite, but I think we need to give more credit uh, to Abrahamic traditions, particularly in their more mystical side. Um, you know, in in if we go into uh, the if we look at the writings, expressions of some of the mystics. They're all talking about intimate relations uh, with God or intimate relations uh, with, G uh, with Jesus. 
uh, which are very striking and very, very powerful. Um, but it seems, broadly speaking, those more esoteric sides of Abrahamic traditions are lesser known to um, to people in the West as well as um, you know people in in India. So I think if more of that would be drawn out, we could we could have more appreciation of that other side. If we take, for example, from the uh, Islamic tradition, there's kind of the exoteric uh, Islam, which we associate very much with law, with Sharia, and so on. Uh, but there's also no, also an mm, esoteric tradition, which, broadly speaking, uh, goes under the label Sufism. And within that Sufi, uh, there are many sub-traditions, and there's, you know, quite some amazing literature that uh, comes out of that. And some of it we find in India. And then there's some cross-fertilization that goes on. Some scholars speak about this cross-fertilization with the bhakti traditions uh, of uh, the Vaishnavas and others of so-called Hindu uh, traditions. So yeah, I like to be a little cautious. Um, but yeah, so I, I was talking about what you find in the academic context of philosophy of religion and so on. Mm. But I like your point about the mysticism. I did a fair bit of research on the Emir Slavi, and which is the, in the Eastern Orthodox Russian Church and also involved in part of Greece, but mostly Russian, I think, where they uh, there was a big controversy and um, so on. And the name worshippers, the Emir Slavi means the name worshippers in Russian. Yes. They were considered heterodox and heavily persecuted. But in uh, reading some of these writings and some of the realization of the name uh, glorifier, <laughs> sorry, name worshipper is the invective. Oh. You worship somehow is a, a nice term, but the name glorifiers is what they call themselves. Right. Uh, just a little bit of information. Uh, so to be technically accurate, the name glorifiers... Um, reading their realizations, uh, uh, you could be reading Bhaktivinoda Thakur and you'd get the same mood. Yeah. Um, I, I was very impressed by, you know, they're far more advanced than me and their relishing of the holy name of God. And in the Chaitanya Vaishnava tradition, developing a taste for the holy name is the ultimate goal. Yeah, so there you go. You are making the point. <laughs> <laughs> But this is this is something different from what we're talking about when we say a conception of God. Because I yeah. mean, somebody can have a mystical realization and a mystical experience, but it's another mm. thing to have an explicit doctrine which is handed down through disciplic succession, which gives a comprehensive understanding of God. Yeah. Now, at this point, it might be helpful because you bring in bring back this word concept conception of God. If I could share something on the screen. Um, this, yep. is, um, this is in the introduction. Uh, there should be a button down the bottom somewhere, add source. Well, something. I see lots of buttons, but none of them are labeled. Uh, if you hover your mouse over them, nope. it should say something. It might look like a computer screen or monitor. Okay, 
not try that. Uh, well, ah, there we go. Um, starting to go, let's see, screen one, screen two. Oh, it's going to give me a whole screen. It's not going to give me a specific. Well, all right. Uh, you should be, uh, anyway, we, we can work with the screen. I guess. Yeah, I'll work with the screen then. Screen two, share. Okay, now I'll expand this. <clears throat> oh, maybe I just do this. Whoa, what happened? Oh, there it is. There we go. How's that? <clears throat> okay. Uh, I think it's coming. Do you see it yet? I can see it there. I'm just waiting for it to load into the streaming software. Oh. Uh, there we, yeah, there it is. Okay, so now I have to explain something a little bit. Um, what I did in one aspect of what I did in my doctoral uh, dissertation, which is a study of Chaitanya Vaishnava, Gaudiya Vaishnava, Murti Seva, that is the, the worship of images, physical images, uh, to help me sort of conceptualize things, I took help from a project that took place in the beginning of this millennium, or toward the end of the last, the beginning of this millennium, at Boston University. It was called the Comparative Religious Ideas project um, that was headed by Robert C Cummings Neville and several colleagues, about 20 colleagues. They worked uh, for th over a period of three years. They produced three vo volumes. One of the three volumes is called Religious Truth. And one of the concepts that they worked with in order to um, facilitate comparison was the idea what they called a fuzzy category. Uh, and so they had three fuzzy categories, one of which was religious truth. What they want to do is specify that category um, with ideas. They didn't want to work with anything other than ideas because that would be complicated enough. Um, in my work, I went beyond ideas to practices and images. Um, they take, and they took six, six different traditions, Christian, um, Buddhist, Islam, uh, Judaism, Chinese religion they took as a group, uh, and so on and tried to, in a sense, plug these in to the broad notion religious truth. But they also analyzed this notion tr uh, religious truth as having three different aspects. Namely, first of all, religious truth as an epistemological problem in which they highlighted what they mean by offering the opposite, namely, religious, sorry, uh, 
the opposite of truth, they said, is error in this case. And uh, let's see if I can slide this down. Hmm, go slowly. Okay, then the second major category of religious truth is religious truth as expressed in sacred texts and objects. And here the opposite of truth is deceit, deception. And then they had a third category of religious truth, religious truth as cultivation and embodiment, uh, the opposite of which is failure, truth versus failure. Um, so going back up to the first category, which is dealing with propositions. Well, that's one aspect. Uh, so you see at the bottom uh, of this first, well, let me get to the top and start and work down. Um, we're using, I'm, I'm using traditional Vedantic terminology here with these terms. I don't know if you see my pointer. Yeah, I think you can see my pointer. Uh, yeah, we can see the mouse. Yeah. Yep. So it's pramaya, pramana, and prama. And this is all having to do with epistemology. Uh, where the Pramaya is the object of knowledge, right knowledge, uh, then Pramana is uh, the means by which one gets right knowledge, and Prama is the result of that practice. It's the knowledge itself. And all of this, I wanted to highlight, uh, goes into spectrum. Uh, from on the in the with re, regard to Pramaya or objects of right knowledge, it can go from the static to the dynamic, which I spelled wrong here. <laughs> uh, static to dynamic um, reference or object of knowledge, and so what we get on the static side is, and now we come to um, I think classical. Abrahamic understanding of, um, of God as being unchanging. So that would be, in some respects, could be correlated with the notion of Brahman as non-changing, truth as non-changing Brahman. Which would be like immutable. Possibly, yes. Maybe a Immutability, yeah. And then at the other extreme, and this is just as an example, there may be other, there would certainly be others, but the notion of truth as the, the dynamics of devotional relationships, and that's what I was speaking about, where the emphasis turns from ontology to rasa. Uh, so that would be one, um, one spectrum uh, where the object, it's the same object, but maybe perceived or comprehended or engaged with in uh, different ways. Then regarding... So, the ta 
the tapva would be all the stuff which is unchangeable. You could so there's aspects of God which are immutable, which can't be changed. But then Rasa has aspects which are mutable because they change throughout a pastime or in relationship to what goes on in the Leela or Right. That depending on how we relate to God, God will relate to us differently. So Yeah, and here the and, and here the point is that both extremes of this um what I'm saying is a kind of spectrum. Uh, and everything in between can be true. We can, we can articulate conceptually um, true uh, descriptions or accounts uh, of, of the object of knowledge uh, within a, a, ver, uh, a range of static to dynamic understandings. That so that's kind of like sense. how we all want to say that <laughs> the impersonalists, such as the Buddhists or the Advaitavadis, who have an impersonal goal and are engaged in impersonal practices, we all say that they are worshipping something that actually exists and their goal is something that actually exists. Uh, however, there's something beyond that, and that is the personal features of God. And But both are true. Um, yeah, okay, we can say like that. Um, you know, we we like to sort of uh, we use this term impersonalist and personalist very easily. But of course, if we want to be uh, more precise with our language, we might run up against challenge, many challenges. Um, there are, and you mentioned Buddhists, and of course, we we like to. Um, condemn the Buddhists for being shunyavad, shunyavadi, uh, who claim emptiness. Um, but there are volumes and volumes and volumes and volumes of books written uh, and published to explain what shunyata, or this, what we're translating as emptiness, really means. And, you know, if you, do, if you go carefully into that, I think you might find it's not so easy to uh, make a simple claim, okay, they're impersonalists and we're personalists. I think it's not so simple. Yeah. I mentioned this with Ryan Mullins that um, if, if you look into, especially versions of Mahayana Buddhism, such as Pure Land Buddhism, it sounds a lot like theism, for example, in Pure Land Buddhism, they say that the sole salvific practice in this Dharma-ending age mm. is the chanting of Nimbutsu, which is basically the holy name of the Supreme Buddha. Right. Uh, now, in, the, in these traditions, they argue, no, this one's the Supreme Buddha, no, this one's the Supreme Buddha. <laughs> but it's pretty common to have an, a conception of a Supreme Buddha. And mm -hmm. it sounds a lot like God, you know, like the, we're in... Kali Yuga, which is the Dharma ending age, you know, kind of uh, yeah, everything goes downhill and everyone becomes sinful. But there's one saving grace, which is that simply by chanting the holy name of God, you can attain all perfection. Yeah, well, I think there's also a lot of um, history missing uh, for all of us of, of the Buddhist, what came to be called the Buddhist tradition. Um, and uh, where I suspect uh, there are connections which have been overlooked uh, with other what we may call personalist understandings. 
But that's, you know, we can only speculate. There's not much more that can yeah, be said. Yeah, I mean, we could, we could do one on Buddhism. I, I think the best way to do these things is to get somebody who actually represents the tradition on and have a dialogue. And Yeah. Um, it's not he, easy. At least because, hear one version of it represented by one practitioner. Exactly. Because um, many years ago when I was studying in Berkeley, I uh, was... I had one classmate, uh, a lady who was a practicing Buddhist, and she mentioned to me, yes, here in the Bay Area, which means the greater San Francisco area, uh, there are some 300 different Buddhist groups. <laughs> so <laughs> so right. good, good luck finding a representative Buddhist. <laughs> But the same can yeah, be said about think, I, same can be said about hin, Hindu traditions. In in the uh, Kumbh Mela, you know this big festival that takes place um, every several years, twelve years. Uh, the full Kumbh Mela takes place at the uh, at the confluence of the Ganga and the Yamuna, where millions of people come. They say it's the largest assembly of human beings on the planet sometimes 20 or more million people, there will be also groups, uh, you know, religious groups represented. And one article I read uh, years ago said that um, at the particular Kumbamela being reported, there were some 17,000 different groups represented. Talk about pluralism. Well, that's one of the beauties of India too is that you have all this diversity yeah and at least historically everyone was accepted and respected and allowed to go about their way uh, provided they weren't hurting anyone else uh, that's that's the that's the history we like to represent <laughs> I don't think it's always been like that but <clears throat> yeah that's another well, subject Krishnananda Goswami likes to argue that there was never a religious war prior to the Mughal invasion. Maybe not a religious war, but there there certainly has been uh, some fierce, fierce competition uh, that's been sometimes violent, apparently. Well, I mean, it just just. But I'm maybe not a there historian. Was there, but I think that is. <laughs> I think there's evidence that India has excelled in this regard greater than other cultures in the fact that you go from one village to the next and there's a different language. So yeah. this, this, is, yeah. this wouldn't be the case if Indians were going around destroying other cultures to try to swallow them up and just mm. have one culture. Yeah. Um, so maybe there was some uh, fighting amongst over beliefs, but... Uh, at least there was a small amount of it compared to, you know, like the, the British, which would literally destroy other cultures and swallow them up. Well, one thing that was interesting is uh, the, apparently a lot of debate was going on. Um, we see that in uh, the theological literature that develops uh, from, well, one could say from maybe the 6th century, the Common Era, uh, going up to early modern period uh, or pre-modern period. Um, 
there were debates, and these debates were going on in particular in the courts of various rulers, kings and chieftains, uh, for a very specific purpose often, which was to gain uh, the support or the recognition of, of the king. Uh, and, and so there's also literature elaborating on the process of, de of debating, different qualities of debate. The Nyaya Shastra in particular talks about uh, different qualities, uh, types of debate and how it's to be done and how it's not to be done. So that kind of warring was going on, and of course, that's a much better kind of warring than physical fighting. Well, I would say debate is healthy. I mean, if you get, have intelligent minds who are sincerely interested in the truth, or at least have intellectual virtues such as honesty and you know, will admit when they're defeated, even if they're just trying to prove their point, yeah. uh, then you can get closer to the truth when you, when you put you know, two intelligent, respectful people following... Uh, rules of intellectual virtues, then right. you can dis discern things. And, yeah. uh, one nice thing about the Vedic culture is you basically you, you have the Vedas. You you can you can figure out what the if you assume that the Vedas have absolute truth in a comprehensive fashion, then you can use hermeneutics and you know try to figure out what the Vedas are saying. And on that basis, you can have arguments and try to adjudicate. Yeah, this uh, comes. This maybe I can call attention again to my little. Uh, diagram here. This second box shows pramanas, and again, there's a, a spectrum um, going from the left, uh, ordinary experience to extraordinary um, verbal testimony. So we go from pratyaksha to shabda. Um, and this is a topic which Jiva Goswami also elaborates considerably in the first of his treatises. Um, what he's doing in that, especially in the Tattva Sandarbha, is working out his epistemology. And what he's, uh, what he, the conclusion he comes to is quite straightforward and not necessarily appreciable by persons outside the tradition because what he works out as a process of elimination is that the final authority for him is this particular scripture called the Srimad Bhagavatam or the Bhagavata Purana. Again, by a process of elimination, he shows what are the uh, weaknesses of uh, sense perception, the weaknesses of, uh, of anumana or inference, uh, and, and there are a few other types. There's 10 altogether pramanas that he refers to. And then he, he, he eliminates them one after another, and then he goes to the Bhagavata Purana. Well, he eliminates them, and then he goes to Veda, and he says, but we have problems to understand Veda. First of all, how much of Veda is, is accessible to us? Oh, well, what about uh, yeah. the Mahabharata? What about the Ramayana? What about the Puranas? So, and one thing after another. So we, we discussed 
we discussed that a fair bit in the interview we did last time on Vedic hermeneutics, so perhaps we can just point people there. Yeah. Sure. Um, but yeah, he and then you're going to say he, he then he arrives at Bhagavatam, which is a core scripture for us, Gaudiya Vaishnavas. Um, so that's epistemology, which is kind of another topic. Maybe we should try to get back to running through classical theism and its four uh, qualities. The one I was missing was divine simplicity. So uh, I discussed this with Ryan Mullins and questioned him a bit. And it seems that when we say God is identical with his holy name, uh, God is identical with his uh, form, with his pastimes, and with his qualities, uh, what we really mean in philosophy of religion jargon is that he has unity with his name, right. form, qualities, and pastimes. Right. Um, would you agree with that? I would agree. Why not? Because I, I did. It seems that the, the simplicity idea uh, runs into problems. And of course, defenders of divine simplicity will argue against it. But then uh, in modern philosophy of religion, a lot of Christians reject hard divine simplicity and accept a softer version of it, which they argue for. William Lane Craig had a discussion recently on capturing Christianity with Ryan Mullins where mm -hmm. he made this point. So William Lane Craig is a defender of divine simplicity. Uh, the other qualities are, uh, let's talk about timelessness. We haven't talked about that one yet. So, Well, wait, before uh, we go there, it's described, if, yeah. if I can just say about simplicity and, and possibly also timelessness, I think this puts us in, in our tradition into discussions about Brahman. Uh, what is the nature of Brahman? It's, we can, I would say, argue that it is simple, uh, that it is timeless, and so on. Um, th then right. all those uh, classical categories, I think, could be seen in that light, or vice versa. I was mentioning... I was mentioning this to Dr. Ryan Mullins that I, it sounds to me like classical theism is something like Advaitavad. Uh, so, you know, the, the Brahman by Advaitavadis is argued to be devoid of all qualities. Classical theism doesn't quite go that far, but divine simplicity, impassable, immutable, and timeless, it seems to be going in that direction. And the philosophical objections to classical theism seem to be very similar to classical to philosophical objections that could be raised against Advaitavad. Mm. Yeah, some parallel seems to be there. Um, it's possibly also, at least historically, if not also theologically interesting, I don't know if you're aware of Bede Griffiths. Uh, he was a Benedictine monk uh, from England, I believe, who went to India in the 1950s and set up an ashram and took on some of the sort of practices, the style, the lifestyle uh, of, of Hindu um, renunciants, of sannyasi. And he did, uh, he wrote considerably much, and he also spoke on uh, Vaishnava literature. He gave lectures on Bhagavad Gita that were eventually transcribed and have has been published as a book. 
And he was exploring one of his, I would say, very broad projects, theological projects, was to say, well, um, Christian theology for so many centuries has attempted or more or less successfully worked with uh, Greek theology. And I had one professor who liked to say that um, the uh, scholastics, uh, you know, from, from the 12th and 13th century in Europe, he said they were trying to baptize. First they tried to baptize Plato and then decided it doesn't work so well. And then they um, baptized, so to say, Aristotle. So Western theology has been very much informed by, we may say, uh, Greek philosophy. And what Griffiths wanted to do is say, well, that's nice. Now let's see what we can do with Indian, specifically Vedanta philosophy in relation to Christianity. Uh, to my sort of surprise and dismay, uh, his conclusion ended up being quite advaitic. advaitic. Um, he spoke a lot about Satchit Ananda uh, as, as being somehow parallel to notions of um, divinity and Christianity, but he ended up uh, with a kind of non-dualist, I don't know if we can say monist, but Advaitic understanding. Surprising to me because, you know, what about Shivaishnavism? What about Ramanujacharya? All of the Vaishnavas. It may have been that he didn't have uh, so much exposure to that. I don't know. My Your video is a bit choppy. I think if you turn your screen share off, it'll get better. Okay, uh, let's see. Stop. Sharing. If you're done with it, that is. Yeah, I think so for now. Okay. Uh, it's oh yeah, there it's gone. Cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Um. Yeah, I've I've noticed that too. That uh, it's a lot of Christians when they turn to uh, Hindu traditions will gravitate towards Shankaracharya, which I find odd because the way I see it, uh, Shankaracharya is kind of like. A, a kind of atheism, like a, a non-theistic religion. They, I know they use the word God when they translate it, but I, I see that as deceptive because when they mean God, they don't mean what's typically meant by the word God. Mm. It's, they're using the same word, but they're referring to something completely different. Yeah, when we understand God, we understand uh, I am servant of God and not just not just until I become God. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I don't know if these Christians think that they can become God. I think no, no, just I was like talking about the advait. Yeah, I was talking about yeah, the advait. Yeah, yeah, I just mean. But I mean, there's some similarities in that you know that the, the well, timeless. You know that the, there's similarities between Brahman, as described by Shankaracharya, and classical theism. You know, timeless, impassable, immutable, uh, simple, uh, and also. Yeah, I don't know. You don't find, I mean, 
in, in the Bible, you do find God talked about as having emotions and, you know, Jesus came as a person and so on. But I don't know if the father's seen so much as a person. I don't think they think God has a body, like you could shake his hand or give him a hug or I don't know if they think he has like a morning routine, like, you know, Krishna has like the eight times of the day. He does different pastimes. I don't know if they think the father or wherever they think he resides up in heaven, or maybe he doesn't have a hip and maybe he's just the ground of all being, which is just kind of like, uh, you know, because if you're going to say he has, he has breakfast and things like that, then you're saying he's a being among beings and they want to reject this. So the sort of classical theism that says God can't have a form, God can't be anthropomorphic, uh, mm-hmm. it's kind of impersonal and therefore it's, it's in some sense not surprising that they gravitate towards Shankaracharya's philosophy. Yeah, the, the Vaishnava understanding, you mentioned anthropomorphism, is... Um, is kind of inverting. It's saying, um, it's saying rather than thinking God is like me, um, we can understand that I am like God. There is this notion, of course, in the Bible of uh, God creating man in His own image, um, and I think I think the Vaishnavas resonate very well with that. Uh, and maybe take it further than than the Abrahamic traditions do to say well uh, if if we are created in God's image, then can we look at how God acts um, beyond this world as you said does does he have a daily re- routine for example? Well, if you say he is uh, timeless, then why would you want to say that uh, he would have a daily routine? <laughs> There's no question of days. Uh, so it becomes a challenge in that respect. Um, so Ravindra Swarup Prabhu, who is uh, a, a great Hare Krishna academic and philosopher, he's, much, I don't know if he originated the term. Much more of a philosopher than I am. <laughs> I don't know if he originated the term, but he used this term theomorphic, which is the- just exactly the point you just made. Yeah, theomorphic. Have you heard that before? Um, I probably no, heard it from him. Anth- instead of anthropomorphic, yeah, instead of God being, yeah. Yeah, it's not that you know we project our form onto God. It's that uh, we're created in God's image. We're theomorphic. I, I, I quite like that idea. And, it's a nice retort to give to someone who say, oh, you're anthropomorphizing God, which lowers him. It's like, well, no, we have these qualities because God has them. You know, how, how can we have a quality that God doesn't have? Right. Which I find it interesting because we, we I, I, another thing which relates to panentheism, where we say, you know, the material world, the material energy always existed in some sense alongside God, as, you know, there's what's called in philosophy the principle of sufficient reason, which is basically that, uh, causes has have effect, have effects, and the cause needs to be sufficient to produce the effect. Right. So in science, this means the paper plane can't knock down a building, and in philosophy, it means I would argue that creation ex nihilo is, does is not possible, because from nothing you can't create everything. So of course they say God has the potency to do that, but I think they're what saying we, it as is Vaishnavas would say, yeah. Well, well we, uh, the Gaudiya Vaishnava understanding 
as far as I see it, is that the, all these opulences, all these qualities, all these souls, all these ideas always existed. They just get permutated endlessly. So there's cycles of creation and destruction of the material universe, but the whole thing's gone on internally. The energy with which the material world is created always existed. It didn't just appear one day and didn't exist before that. It always existed. It always exists, but it is, but its source is also there. And that, <clears throat> excuse me, that is um, understood to be, depending which angle you want to take, it's either Brahman or Paramatma or Bhagavan. Um, so in that sense, it's not something out of nothing, but I think my understanding of the um, Abrahamic understanding of uh, creation ex nihilo is it's not nothing it's not something out of nothing but rather it's it's something out of god and god is creating that something from nothing because he is the origin so i don't think it's unreasonable uh it's just different well Prabhupada gave this argument that the source needs to have all the qualities of the creation. So God cannot create personalities unless he is a person. I, I think both sides would agree with that. Well, no, some people think God's not a person. Oh, okay. Some people um, think God's impersonal. Yeah, yeah um, and we have a technical term for that, satkaryavada, uh, that uh, the the effect is existent in the cause. Right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that would be. They call it. And they, they shorten things in philosophy because that they use all the time. They call it the PSR. Um, so maybe we could talk about timelessness now. So a lot mm. of Hare Krishna preachers will tell us that in the spiritual world, there's no time. Mm. God, there's no time for God. And I don't, I've, of course, they'll say, we just can't comprehend what that means because we have no experience of it. And then, we, and then, that, and then they tell us all the Leela and so on. But I, I can't make sense of that personally. Maybe you have a different explanation. My understanding is when we say there's no time in the spiritual world, what we mean is time as it's described in Bhagavad Gita where Krishna says, time I am the destroyer of all. Uh, this force which brings everything to ultimate destruction where like Jesus said, store your treasures uh, not on earth where they're prone to dust and rust, but in heaven where they're safe. <laughs> Does he use the word rust? <laughs> anyway. Um, I'm not sure. <laughs> rust. Okay. Um, one interesting, possibly interesting point uh, is that the word, one of the words for time, main word for time in Sanskrit is kala. And kala mm, has a sense of pushing, impelling, um, driving, and specifically driving to destruction. So when we say that in the temp, we sometimes make that distinction, there's the temporal world and there's the non-temporal realm. We say that uh, God 
prevails or God exists in the non-temporal realm. Um, and what would be understood there, there I would say, is that uh, there can be there can be sequentiality. Um, there's probably other technical terms that I don't know. <laughs> uh, there can be changing seasons. Uh, chrono chron chronological series? Yeah, chronology, you can say. Uh, there can be seasons, there can be rising suns, sun and moon. Although Krishna also mentions in the Gita, there is... Uh, what is it? Natat Bhasayate Suryo Nashashanko Napavaka. There is no sun, moon, or fire uh, in this non temporal realm. And at the same time, there is. <laughs> he doesn't say that in the Gita, but in the Bhagavata, there is. Uh, so, so there's no destruction. Uh, in the sense of that which is the cause of all suffering in this world. We suffer in this world, especially because of destruction. Um, and so, as you mentioned, Krishna says also in the Gita, when, when Arjuna asks him, not you, Arjuna, but the original Arjuna, <laughs> When he asks Krishna, he's, he's astonished by the, this kind of fireworks display of his cosmic form. He says, who are you? And Krishna says, kalosmi lokakshaya krit pravito. I am time destroyer of everything. Um, that time, Krishna is identifying himself with, and at the same time he's... Uh, indicating that he is the controller of that time, the controller of time, and therefore beyond time. But then to go to the next step and say, oh, so therefore he's timeless. Well, here we maybe need to go fall back on this distinction between tattva and rasa. Because if we speak of, in terms of tattva, then we can more easily, let's say, uh, identify a kind of timelessness in the sense uh, of uh, being, Brahman is, is, yeah, it is the foundation, we can say, um, which uh, is ever-existing and therefore is beyond time. But the subject of time is, is it's, it's way beyond, you know, the subtleties of discussions about the nature of time in, in philosophy and theology are way over my head. Um, I believe that St. Augustine discusses time extensively in uh, his, his work, The Confessions. Um, so Ryan Mullins is a bit of an expert on theories of time. Mm -hmm. So we can throw some ideas at him and let him digest it and see what he makes of what we throw at him. And see um, what he throws at us. <laughs> one, one way I've thought about it is in there's two main conceptions of time which are debated 
A theory and B theory. I cannot remember which is which, but one of them is is considered tenseless time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when, when, when we talk about Krishna's pastimes, we, as we'll talk about them in presence tense. Krishna uh, is chased by Mother Yashoda. Krishna sports with the gopis. Krishna mm-hmm. wrestles with the cowherd boys. Right. It's not that, oh, in the future one day, Krishna's going to do this, and then he'll have done it, mm-hmm. and then it won't happen again. There's no, and, and it's not like, oh, yeah, Krishna did that once, and it's not going to happen again. There's, there's past tense in the sense that Krishna appeared at a particular point in history, but it's also present tense in the sense that he's doing the same thing in a different universe right now, mm. and he'll do it continually. And in the spiritual world, he's doing um, s- somewhat, you know, similar pastimes. So presentism is, is uh, you know, one theory people argue about. So my theory, which I would propose, is that we have presentism or tenseless time in the spiritual world, and we have time as we would more ordinarily understand it in the material world. I can't remember the name of the other theory of time. I think it's A theory. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is, uh, you know, the, the ordinary theory of time is that you have past, present, and future, and um, maybe one of them is presentism, the other one's tenseless time. Anyway, I'm, I'm mucking up all that. I should have done some study on this before the discussion, but I think I'm <laughs> explaining the concepts at least, but just not having the terms. Okay, well, I can't comment. Uh, yes, it's been a while since I did. I also read about A theory and B theory, but it's been some time, so it's also not. It's not at hand for me to say anything intelligent about. <laughs> yeah, but what 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 um, I find what I find from a simple point of uh, just a kind of sim- simple and hopefully not simplistic understanding uh, is that our experience of time is always in relation to that which um, that which disappears, that which becomes destroyed. And most specifically, um, and what is our real concern about time is that it destroys our bodies. We we want to live. There is something about us that wants to go on living, and there's simultaneously uh, the the absolute reality of the temporality of our bodies. And that uh, that throws us into an awkward situation. Prabhupada sometimes would speak of an embarrassing situation. He says the self, the soul, that, that which is eternal, which is presently in this temporal body, is embarrassed to be here. <laughs> I, thought, I find it very striking. Right, yeah. So when, it, it makes sense that the Vedas would use the word they use for time to mean this force which destroys everything because basically when we talk about time we that's what we think of you know um time's running out time's something you can never buy back once it's gone right it's 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 basically pervades our concept of time and it's linear Uh, time waste you know wasting your youth yeah and it's linear yeah and that's another feature Um, of uh not just vaishnava but so many asian traditions there's some sense, a very strong sense, that uh, that time is is cyclical, mm-hmm. and that the 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 sorts it's going through several kinds of cycles or uh, larger and smaller cycles all the time. 
course, our clocks are going around in circles. Uh, uh, but but and, and we're we're conscious of rotations. Uh, we measure movement by the time the movement of the sun and the stars, the earth moving, and so on. And yet, uh, our historical consciousness, especially, puts us in this very limited, I would say, understanding of time, that it's linear. Uh, the Vedas also talk about how, uh, time dilation. That's the phys technical physics term, which is mm. how uh, when you're in different places in the galaxy or moving at different speeds uh, relative to the speed of light, it's, you experience time differently. So it's described in the Bhagavatam, it's mentioned that time for Lord Brahma is very different from time here. Yes. You know, just a few moments for him is one year down here. Right. Um, but uh, so I, I, I've discussed, mentioned this to Dr. Ryan Mullins, and, and he said, so you, what you you're not saying that time doesn't exist for God in the spiritual world. What you're saying is what time is doing is something different from what it's doing here. Yeah, that would be a that way was, of putting I it. I think that was a way of putting it. Okay. Yeah, sounds good. Time is doing something um, so different we, from what it does here. It's time in uh, the spiritual world. We like to speak of, we, we use this term, spiritual world. Um, paravyoma would be a technical term. Vaikunta, mm, we sometimes use that term. It's uh, what is time doing is it's expanding ananda. Ananda means something like bliss, uh, spiritual joy, and it's understood anandam buddhivardhanam, that, that that bliss is ever-expanding. So when we think of something expanding, we think of, we may say, a sequence of time. So, all right, that's there, and how is it functioning there? It's, ex it's functioning to expand uh, the... Mm, ever joyful ananda, joyfulness, the bliss uh, of relating, of interacting with uh, the Supreme Person. What's that verse? I think it's uh, in the Rama Samhita about how time, you know, the sun by its rising and setting destroys the life of an ordinary person, but for the devotee, it doesn't do that. That's in the Bhagavatam. Um, right. <laughs> and since my brain's not working right now, I can't think of the Sanskrit. But uh, yes, it, it's exactly, that's that's a nice example. Udyan, Did I quote it accurately? Udyanastan Chayanaso uh, is one of the lines. Uttama Shloka Vartaya is there. <laughs> anyway. Both by its rising and setting, the sun decreases the duration of life of everyone except one who utilizes the time by discussing topics of the all-good personality of Godhead. Right. So, but we don't mean by that that you don't grow old if you practice Krishna consciousness. What we mean is you're growing in a way that doesn't grow back. You're growing your bhakti. And that never gets taken away. Exactly. Yeah, you are cultivating your bhakti. Uh, the 
which is sometimes compared to a kind of growing plant, uh, the bhakti lata. Lata means um, a vine, uh, a plant which is usually growing up, um, perhaps on around a tree like that. So mm, the process of engaging in Krishna bhakti is understood as a kind of cultivation, and that cultivation results in a growth, an increasing in the growth of something, and what is that? An increase of bhakti, an increase of devotion, an intensification of devotion. Um, and at some point, I don't know if this is a non sequitur, but with the Gaudiya Vaishnava tradition especially, when we speak about relation with God, we also want to speak about the experience of absence of God. And it turns out this becomes the, the very center, especially on the side of, the, of rasa, of understanding of love of God. There is a sense that God is present, and then there is a sense of his absence. And the sense of absence is often compared with the feeling that a lover has with a beloved who is absent, who has gone off uh, to war, for example. Indeed, Krishna has leelas where he goes off to war. Um, and then the pining, the feeling of uh, hankering for the Lord's return becomes critical, it becomes essential. And I would say it goes into, uh, it spills over, if you like, into understandings of tattva. Uh, that to comprehend God, uh, at some point, the position of the devotee is to let go of comprehension, to let go of uh, conceptualization, uh, to say even, and this Srila Prabhupada would say sometimes, he said, for devotees, we don't even care if Krishna is God or not. We just love him. <laughs> he actually would say like that, to emphasize uh, that the conceptual aspect uh, of who is God become, it goes way into the background, it may disappear altogether. But I think we see that also in other uh, religious traditions. Uh, to uh, various so that degrees. point about, about bhakti, we yeah, the bhakti ladder beach growing, we would extend that to many other religions who uh, have a bhakti element to them, who are developing devotion to God. It's not just Hare Krishna. Oh, yes. Uh, and that's an interesting point, uh, which, as I remember, you mentioned Ravinda Sarup, our contemporary theologian. He's written an article, as I remember, where he was making just this point that um, we see a sort of uh, typology within our tradition. There is karma, there is jnana or jnana, there is yoga, 
and then there is bhakti. And what he's pointing out is that uh, these sorts of approaches to ultimate reality, ultimate truth, um, we find them in across the board. You can make a chart. You can you can have rows. Uh, you can have karma, jnana, yoga, bhakti, or put bhakti on top if you like. And then you could have vertical columns uh, designating different religious traditions, and you could then find specific examples for each of these uh, within their texts or within their practices. So, yeah, that's that's another way of doing comparison, I suppose. Um, so maybe we can just quickly run through a summary of what we think of classical theism. So uh, divine simplicity, you've mentioned these qualities could describe Oh, I should I should just make one point about the Rasa Tattva comparison because I think that's related to something you discussed just previously. Mm-hmm. Um, so, with Rasa, we, we mean relationship, uh, you know, emotion, uh, taste, uh, experience, and so on. And with Tattva, we mean ontology, you know, the the reality of what what categories things fit in and what exists and so on, the nature of what exists. Uh, so. When we talk about rasa, I would say that would get into religious studies or the practice of theology. Like, whereas, I mean, you you could, re- I'd say it's religious studies talking about rasa. I mean, philosophy of religion is more focused on tattva, on ontology, what exists, and the logical relationships and so on. And uh, you could you could argue some logic around rasa by saying, you know, Krishna must be the greatest because he's got all these qualities in full. But if you really want to get into studying them, I say you're actually practicing the religion at that point. You're doing religious studies. You're, you're, getting, you're diving into it. And uh, um, you're, in some sense, surrendering logic and not doing philosophy of religion anymore. Well, okay, but you're using the term religious studies in a very different way from how the term religious studies is used in the academy. Just a footnote. It's okay, you can do that. Right, so <laughs> uh, I might have it wrong, but... Uh, how I understand it is philosophy of religion is like very much using philosophy to analyze theology. So right. it's like yes. logical relationships, you know, what, you know, what, what can we deduce using logic? Whereas religious studies is more into sociology and studying the history of religion and what, this is what these people believe. This is what those people believe. And I guess, you may, I, I don't know what term you would use for actually getting into the hard practice of it and, you know, diving deep into it. Maybe there's a better term than religious studies. Uh, maybe just religion, yeah. practice of religion, <laughs> cultivation. Yeah, perhaps. <clears throat> but the- theology is often uh, distinguished very sharply from from religious studies. You mentioned religious studies is looking at whatever, psychological, sociological, right. and so on. And, so uh, then we'll say there's three. Three what? Oh, there's, there's philosophy of religion, which is, you know, taking Western philosophy or even Indian philosophy and picking things apart and putting them back together again. Religious studies is history and sociology of religion. And then theology, we can we can use that term for the practice. For yeah. actually diving into it, for oh. you know, getting into whatever the religion is. Okay, because theology has uh, many different branches as well. There's systematic theology, there's... 
um, um, what's it called? <laughs> anyway, right. so, yes. So, so we're the doing application. Bhakti theology. We're doing Gaudiya Vaishnava theology when we get into Rasa rather than philosophy of religion. And that's what yeah. happens in Bhagavatam class. That's what happens at a Japa retreat. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, so then, uh, so I think, uh, you know, and then you mentioned uh, these four qualities, simplicity, impassibility, immutability, and timelessness. Uh, we could say that they're true of Brahman, but they're not true of Paramatma or Bhagavan. Uh, I don't think the classical theists would say if they're true of just one aspect of God that they're actually true at all. Um, it's not what they mean when they say God has these qualities. Right. And so really what we're doing is we're throwing out classical theism. And um, that's, it's not accepted by Gaudi Vaishnavas. No, I wouldn't say that because I would say, you know, the, <clears throat> the, the sort of foundation texts uh, which refers to these three terms, Brahman, Paramatma, Bhagavan, uh, you know, Vedanti tat tatvam vidas tatvam yajnanam advayam brahmeti paramatmeti bhagavaniti shabdhyate uh, is saying that these are three different terms for the same thing. Advaya jnana, non-dual um, knowledge. That's That's what the verse is actually saying. And so we're not throwing out, but we're saying, we're saying they are, they, those, those terms, sorry, yeah, those terms that you're using, the classical terms and so on. Yes, they, they are helpful for understanding a certain aspects of God, which we would characterize, the Vaishnavas would characterize as Brahman. And and Brahma, and Bhagavan is Brahman, and Brahman is Bhagavan. So it's not that it's either or, but it's both and. Well, when you add uh, all the qualities together, uh, I've heard His Grace Ravi Gupta describe this, that um, this is one thing we do. You know, the Advaitavadis, they want to take everything away and say, the ultimate, the absolute truth is devoid of all qualities. But we do the opposite. We layer all the qualities on. And this is how we get Bhagavan. Uh, but when you do that, then you can't do something like have an absolute negative, like say God is timeless or God has no qualities. He only has one quality. Or say God can't, is impassable. He doesn't respond to our emotions. You might still be able to say that, but you would not finish by saying that. <laughs> you know? Why? Well, you'd be qualifying it. You'd, you'd say, you'd, you'd he's timeless. It. And not only that. <laughs> not only that. He also that. has time. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's not really saying he's timeless that's... if we're also saying he has time. <laughs> um, I... I think I, I i should have questioned ryan mullins on this when i when i had, had him on but maybe we can talk about this next time that uh, it's kind of a separate topic though it's more about the christian tradition and the history that the some of these ideas of god have arisen in a dialectical context so hmm. the christians were defending their biblical understanding of god against greek skepticism hmm. 
And in order to do that, they adopted certain defenses. And these defenses were that God's simple, he's timeless, he's immutable, he's impassable. They, that these, these, these are responses to particular skept, skeptical objections which were offered at them. So they exist in a dialectical context or they arose out of dialectical context. But I don't know if you necessarily find them revealed in the Bible. Does God come down and say, I'm impassable, immutable, timeless? Uh, of course, this is a question for a Christian scholar. I'm just throwing it out there. Yeah. <laughs> well, it may also be a little more complicated than that, not just responding to skeptics, but uh, responding to worshipers of uh, what the Abrahamic traditions call pagan gods. Oh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, to contrast to say you're worshiping this god well our god is is uh, is very different from that because of these qual of these particular principles right and then um back on open theism with uh regard to whether god has divine foreknowledge or not you you were saying he does but there's an aspect of himself that doesn't uh Doc, Ryan Mullins was saying that he's heard from a Hindu scholar that the Vedas are not explicit on that topic. So there's room for interpreting it that God knowing the future means he knows the seasons. He has a rough idea what's going to happen, but he doesn't have absolute knowledge of every choice we're ever going to make. And I think it's also true of the Bible that the Bible is not explicit on this top topic. It's open to interpretation. Would, would you agree with that? Uh, I would tentatively agree, not knowing thoroughly enough all of the Vedic literature, <laughs> which is vast. Uh, but tentatively, I would agree uh, that it's not so explicit. Um, I would, what was it I wanted to say? Anyway, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. And then there's a, another question, which is uh, dial theism is a concept in philosophy that you can have true contradictions and they apply it to Jesus and they say, Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And this is a contradiction, but mm -hmm. it's a true contradiction. Uh, Cause you know, obviously human is not a God and God's not human, but they say God is both fully human and fully man. And then you have Gordia Vaishnavas who will say, uh, you have true contradictions. You know, we're, we're, you have simultaneous oneness and difference. We're both one with God and different for God. Mm -hmm. And some will argue that this is a contradiction. Uh, then, you know, my understanding and others will understand it this way is that uh, it's, it's a paradox, not a contradiction. A paradox means something which seems like a contradiction at a one level of understanding. But if you go to a higher level of understanding, it's resolved and you see how it's not actually a contradiction. Both things are true. And it's, their, their truth is compatible with one another. Yeah, I, I would say the same. Uh, and I recall, uh, what was his first name? There's a French uh, Christian theologian from the 20th century, Marcel was his last name. He made a distinction between uh, puzzles, problems, and mysteries. And he said, a puzzle is something you can solve. Um, 
possibly by yourself. A problem is something you can solve um, with the help of others. And a mystery you don't solve. A mystery is something the deeper you go, the deeper it gets. <laughs> so I think with any religious tradition, at some point you run up against paradox. Um, or you enter into the paradox, and that's what the practice of religion is, is you enter, you allow it to be there, and you enter. Um, you, you let it be there, and you find the depth, or you pursue the depth of it. So I think that's what's what we're talking about here. Um, and going back to the, the, the issue of contradiction, it also points to how in the Vaishnava tradition and others in India, uh, it's seen that there are shortcomings with logical reasoning. Uh, logic has its purpose. It can help uh, to understand um, so many things and ultimately it can help to understand God but it cannot in and of itself uh, give us understanding of God it can be as yeah Jiva Goswami says it's it's a servant uh, it is a servant of uh, the Shabda uh, which is revelation which is uh, Shastra scripture this idea that logic is a servant uh, is, is consistent with uh, findings in psychology. Mm. Uh, Jonathan Haidt wrote a book. I uh, can't remember the title of the book just now. The moral, No, something about morality. Um, and in it, he argued that the, uh, uh, you know, the intellect is more of a, what did he say? A, a, a public, uh, I'm trying to think of the term right now. Um, you know, we make our decisions on an emotional level and then our logical mind just has the service of making it sound good to the public, uh, a public public service representative, whatever the term is, P a PR, public relations. Yeah, you know, it's a PR representative. You know, it, go <laughs> it goes out there and finds justifications for decisions. Sort of after the fact. Yeah, that can be one way that logic can serve us, but uh, I think what we're interested in, logic and reason, is a much more interesting engagement of logic and reason, recognizing their limitations. Did we lose you somewhere?
Ah, there you are. You're back. Cool. Uh, I think your internet cut out. Was it me? Okay. Uh, I think it was your internet. Yeah. I, I just, uh, expl- I'll summarize the point again. I'll probably say it better this time. I can edit out that bit anyway. Uh, <laughs> so uh, people who, who are on the autism spectrum can struggle in relationships because they're hyperlogical unless they're in a relationship with another autism person, but then they don't have normal relationships. So uh, the ultimate goal in theism, at least in Gaudi Vaishnavism, is a relationship with God. So if you're hyperlogical about it, you know, if you just do philosophy of religion and never sort of park that and just get into the mysticism, then you're not going to understand the relationship with God. You're not going to be able to go deep into it. So logic is a servant, but it, it doesn't get us the whole way. Yes. Um... Our Srila Prabhupada used to say that self-realization begins with the tongue. <laughs> and he was, in effect, paraphrasing a Sanskrit verse, Atashri Krishna Namadi Nabhavetrahyam Indriyai Sevan Mukehi Jivado Chihvado Svayamevas Puratyada that Atashri Krishna Nama Adi Nabhavet Grahyam, one cannot grasp Grahyam. Uh, God is not graspable by our senses. And included with the senses in this tradition is the mind. The mind is considered a kind of sense. Um, Indriya sense. Uh, but then the next line seems to contradict the first line. It says, Seva unmuke hi jihvado, beginning with the tongue, which, um, well, isn't that a sense? You sense the taste. Well, yes. Sevan mukehi jivado svayameva spurati. He becomes manifest himself, svayam, by engaging the tongue. What does that mean, engaging the tongue? Two things, specifically speaking, reciting, chanting names of God, or speaking about uh, what we call his glories, the, the, the kirti, the fame, anything related to God um, in glorific- with a spirit of wanting to praise or glorify. That's one engagement of the tongue. And the other is uh, to taste. And we understand this specifically means to taste food uh, which has been consecrated, which has been offered to God, vegetarian food we uh, take to be essential. And that, uh, we understand, becomes a process of energizing through which then further service can be done with the physical senses, the body, through which um, God becomes uh, increasingly um, manifest or realized one way i think of that is uh you have the gross level and then subtle level and you know progressively more subtle levels uh but we can work on the gross level you know i can i can choose what i listen to i can choose what comes out of my mouth i can choose what i eat um and when you make those choices in ways that align you with god and you get that external alignment uh, then you can work on the more subtle levels. Mm, yes, it's like you know, you know, like you know, psycho- Like what is it? Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's something like that. You mm. know, when you when you have sort of 
like the yogi Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita, uh, I can't remember the term he uses, but if he uses the word yogi, you know, eat, not eating too much or eating too little, not yes. eating, sleeping too much or sleeping too little. When, when you align these things, then you can yukta. engage in yoga. Yeah, he uses the word yukta, which is just the past passive participle of the word yoga. Uh, yoga in this context can mean connected or engaged, and yukta, well, the past passive form is yukta, engaged, and it comes to mean appropriately, appropriately engaged, not too much, not too little, and so on. Yeah. Um, so we're at two hours now. Um, mm. I don't know if there's any more points we should cover. Well, I think that covers something. It gets, uh, you know, it's an endless topic, I'm sure. <laughs> from <laughs> yes. here, I mean, from here, we might uh, go off on one tangent or another. Um, I made a note here I was thinking to share on this event, quoting Martin Buber. Oh, uh, this is where he's making the point, God must be a person. He says, we are, quote, completely incapable of declaring what God's essential being is. But it is both permitted and necessary to say that God is a person. I thought that was quotable. Also, um, maybe I can just uh, mention, if you are interested, Arjuna, I can share a link to an interview I made some three, more than three years ago, uh, with Father Noel Shaith, the late Noel Shaith. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, an Indian... Uh, Christian theologian, wonderful person, and we discussed the Bhagavatam together for something like half an hour. I interviewed him in India. Yeah, please uh, send me the link, and I'll I'll throw it under the video, and I'll put it in a comment too, so it's uh, independent, so it's easy for people to find. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I like your point that we, we this topic's endless. I mean, Christians have been debating this topic for the last 2,000 years, and, uh, well, Vaishnavas have also been de debating it. They've been debating it in a different context against different ideas. So to bring the Hare Krishna conception of God into a Western context, uh, there's a lot of work to be done in exploring what it means in that language. Yeah. And what the objections raised in the West would, would you know, how we'd address those. Yeah, and I do, I do want to mention again and recommend uh, Francis Clooney's book for someone who is very interested. Uh, he goes into quite some depth, Hindu God, Christian God, uh, with a subtitle. This has been published by Oxford University Press, and uh, it's, it's a... It's a very careful analysis of much of what we're talking about here. But not he's not uh -huh. uh, discussing the Gaudiya Vaishnav tradition. He's discussing from the Hindu side the Sri Vaishnava tradition. But there's a lot of um a lot of family resemblance, especially 
in this sphere with Gaudiya tradition. Right, that sounds interesting. I'll have to check that out. I, I like the story of the German, maybe you know the story better than me, the German scholar who was traveling around India and trying to figure out who's God among all these different personalities. Do you know the story? I don't remember, no. And uh, he was, you know, he saw like this Durga and Shiva and Vishnu and and Krishna, and he thought, which one of these is is God? You know, <laughs> and uh, he he figured out. He went around and saw each of them was doing something. Each of them, you know, had some task. Oh, and they each had weapons. But then he saw that Krishna yeah, just was weapons. holding a. Krishna was not holding Krishna was any weapons. Playing. He was playing a flute. Yeah. <laughs> And he thought this this guy this one must be God because he's just playing, you know. Like you go around a, a you say you go to a big factory, a big big business office, and you go around and everyone's busily working, and you find <laughs> one guy's in his office playing mini golf. You know who's in charge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um. So maybe we can leave it there. We're going to do a follow up discussion where Dr. Kenneth Valpy will discuss with Dr. Ryan Mullins. And then okay. we'll. I've got. I've. I've also planned one with Joe Schmid, where me and Joe Schmid again are discuss whether God plays a flute or not. Which, that's how we're pitching it. But the basic idea is God's the greatest conception of God is is the truest. If God's the greatest being imaginable, and you know, so I'm going to argue that a, greater than a God who doesn't play a flute is one who <laughs> does play a flute. Okay. <laughs> Of course, you know you don't. From this argument, you don't get to flute necessarily. God may play a violin or he a could oboe play a violin. or something, but maybe not an oboe. Maybe a guitar. I don't know. I used so, to play oboe, the, and I'm not God, so that doesn't prove anything. No, I mean, I mean, like my wife plays recorder, which sounds a lot like a, a flute. Uh, they're very similar in many ways, um, but. Krishna's going to be a far better flute player. Now, the, the greatest flute player is going to be, you know, of all, will be God. There's one language I've, I've heard about uh, a native culture in Africa where the word for God in the language is he who has the most cows. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think go. that'll be a fun one. Um, yes. So we'll wrap it up there. Okay. Um, thank you, dear Krishna Swami, for coming on. Well, thank um, you for having me. And I hope I didn't make more confusion than we started with. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. It's a fun discussion anyway. Yeah, it's it's a, a deep topic and we should we could go at great length on it. Um, but I'm looking forward to hearing what Ryan Mullins has to say about it. part of it might be him offering he might do a sort of uh steel man of objections to our tradition. I, I found yeah. that that he holds to a version of Christianity which is more similar to uh, Gaudiya Vaishnava understanding of God than other versions of Christianity are. So uh -huh. he's on our side on some of these points. Okay. Uh, but he knows the objections that people would level at it. He's, he's right. very well read and, and knows oh, yeah. the, the, the modern debate on these topics really well. So he can um, he, he, he can also give us a point scoring and say, you know, this is the point for Harry Krishna's because <laughs> you have this view and this is a point against Harry Krishna's because you have this view. Of course, that would be his subjective opinion because there's Krishna. Christians who disagree with him, who, who might have a, a, an inverted conception of what gives you point in your favor and what gives you point in the negative. 
Indeed. All right, so uh, we'll wrap it up there. If you like this kind of content, be sure to subscribe. Please hit the like button to help us in the algorithm and comment down below. And we'll see you in the next one. Hare Krishna. Cool, we're offline now. Okay, I see a message that says CPU overloaded. Uh, um, that'll be your computer. <laughs> really? Uh, is your computer really weak? Uh, what kind of a computer is it? It's a MacBook from this? three years ago. Oh, it should be fine. This uh, this uh, web portal that I'm using is, is kind of demanding on your system. Mostly uh, on your internet, I think, though. It shouldn't be on your CPU. I don't know if you've got much else open. That's a bit weird. Yeah. Anyway. Cool, yeah. Thanks for that. That was fun. And um, I'll... I've already created a group chat with you and Ryan Mullins, so I'll just um, oh, okay. uh, put a, su suggest a time in there and see if it works yeah. for you all. Okay. Yeah, maybe you suggested some reading for him. Um, well, if he hasn't read it yet, then this book by Frank Looney, Hindu God, Christian God. All oh, right, I'll check the messages and see if you recommended that. Oh, yeah, um, just send it on Facebook. Send me uh, any links you want me to put under the video. Okay. Um, and I'll throw those there now. Okay. All right, you can do that now while, while I wait. Cause, um, oh, uh, no do you need it right now? Me. Because it'll take me... No, it doesn't have to be right now. You can you can send it later. It's fine. I'll just yeah. check it on there once I've got it. Okay. Or yeah, I've sent you the link for the Facebook video. You can even write a comment under the video yourself, and I'll just pin your comment. That's the that, that might be the best way. You can, you can write out the comment yourself with your endorsements of each of the links, and then... I'll just pin your comment so your comment will always show at the top. Okay, now I need to be reminded what all am I sharing? Um, <laughs> uh, it was a it was a lecture and a book. Those are the only two things I remember you mentioning. Oh, right. If okay. you think of anything else, you can add that too. Okay. A uh, 30 minute interview you did with a Christian scholar. Yes, Noel Shaith, right. Okay, then. Cool, yeah, thanks again for coming on. Thank it's you. A, it's a pleasure it's, to have a great I, scholar and Vaishnava on. I, I really like what you're doing. Uh, I think it's, it's something which is much needed, um, you know, so that we don't just talk to ourselves. Shadow, <laughs> you know, it becomes shadow boxing, as Ridai Nanamar says sometimes. So it's a good right, thing. Right, yeah. I can't believe no one else is doing it. But anyway, I'm 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 stoked I get to do this service. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> My favorite thing. <laughs> I'm Very like good. a kid in a candy store. <laughs> I don't know if you can tell that in these discussions or like with Ryan Mullins, how much I love it. <laughs> okay then. All right, yeah. So I'll, we'll be in I'll touch. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.